You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we look forward to seeing you there. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. You're not retiring anytime soon. Are you? Now pay attention, 007. I've always tried to teach you two things. First, never let them see you bleed. And the second? Always have an escape plan. Hello and welcome to the 602 Club, Trek FM's local watering hole, where I am your host, Matthew Rushing. And have I always tried to teach you two things? One, make sure you're subscribed on iTunes. And second, make sure you leave a review. That's right. I'm so excited to be here. Um, If you understand what we're talking about tonight, you'll probably have gotten the little reference there. We are diving into the penultimate James Bond movie for our series since we have already covered all of the Craig films. We are going to be diving into The World Is Not Enough. And I have to say, what a great family motto. Uh, And with me here to talk this fan... Well, this Bond film is none other than Hot Christie, as she named herself. <laughs> Thank you for having me back. <laughs> our, our joke is that my mic kind of runs a little hot, and so I said, no, I'm always a little hot. Um, but uh, <laughs> glad to be back and to talk about a movie that I hadn't rewatched in a long time, but um, was glad I did. I think it's still a good movie, um, aside from someone's name Christmas. But um, I think... What, me? Yeah, you. Christmas rushing. <laughs> <laughs> the gift to the world. That's all right. I Oh, wow, man. This pun, it's going to be happening all <laughs> night, so just get used to it, folks. And of course, with us, as always, is, uh, well, the more dulcet toned than I am tonight, because, well, I sound like a sick Batman. Uh, we've got John Champion. You sound like a sick man. Like... I'm sick, Batman. (laughs) 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 No, pleasure to be here, guys. And um, it's a movie. So, uh, yeah, looking forward to uh, getting into it. (laughs) Uh, Is it the movie that, is it the gift that keeps on giving? That's the question. But uh, before we dive into that, the gift that does keep on giving is the 602 Club to you every week, which you can find over there on iTunes. Over on iTunes, you can find all of the shows we do at iTunes.com slash TrekFM. And while you're over there, uh, as I said before, make sure you're subscribed to the 602 Club. You can get the show as soon as I publish it. And leave us a star rating review. And if you do, you will be thanked on the show and your review will be read out to everyone. So you can be internet famous. That's right. Uh, You can follow us all over the place. We're on Twitter at Trek FM, Facebook at facebook.com slash Trek FM. We do have a listeners only discussion group, which is called the Babel Conference. That is housed on Facebook. 
you can find that by typing Babel into the search field there on the old Facebook, or maybe you're over at the website at trek.fm and you're perusing show pages. Just hit the discussion button on the menu, uh, and that'll bring you right over there. And then last but not least, maybe you would like to contact the show and you would like to send us an email. Well, we love getting emails here on the show, so go over to trek.fm slash contact, choose a show, choose the 602 Club, and that email will come to me and then any hosts that are on that week. So as we mentioned, we're continuing with Bond, and we've got The World Is Not Enough. What's interesting continuing with Bond with this one, guys, is I was kind of shocked when I, you know, usually when I go and do some research and I watch the the behind-the-scenes stuff, there's all of these things that have happened. This one, there's very little controversy or trouble that seems to be behind the scenes, which is kind of strange for Bond movies. Um, So... Instead of having a lot to talk about, you know, there there really wasn't. I thought this would be a good section to really kind of talk about the idea that this one continues in the vein of the last film, which kind of took some social commentary, some things that were happening around the world, and that, you know, this story seems to still in some ways be pretty relevant with the idea of interrupting oil supplies and trying to one-up each other in that oil game, which is still such an important thing for us here in the West and around the world. Um, And I thought that that was, you know, if there is one good thing I think I could truly say about the movie is that the plot itself is actually still pretty relevant when it comes to what the villains are after. I completely agree, Matt, and I'm I'm glad that it's a movie that has this social commentary. Like you said, that you know, it's it's was relevant, especially then. I remember, even though I was young at the time, um, you know, the world becoming more um, aware of a that oil is not a renewable resource. And B, that we need to be more environmentally conscious about that. Um, And so I I did think it was a, a fascinating um, you know, plot to go with because of that, but then also that it was interesting and it gave them a new way to go with the plot of the movie as far as villains go, um, to not just be something outlandish, something, you know, that's more grounded um, and, and makes sense for when the movie came out. Um, I do want to add that I felt like as far as the behind-the-scenes interaction between the cast and crew... I think it was great. Obviously, we probably all do that there wasn't a lot of turmoil this time. And when you watch the behind the scenes with Brosnan, especially, it just seemed that everybody jived very well together. And that he said that um, he was ready to do many more films with um, this group and to continue as Bond. And, you know, as we know, obviously, we get him again and die another day. Um, And so it just it felt like it in a good way that there was nothing exciting going on in, in that area. And I was glad to hear it. You know, you talk about the, the kind of um, relevance to uh, late 20th century, early 21st century politics and business, the business of energy and uh, that, that political landscape uh, where the movie takes place. And I just kept thinking, man, you know, it was only 25 years before that Bond got the Solex agitator out of the hands of uh, Scaramanga. Where was Bond's commitment to renewal, renewable uh, energy mm-hmm. resources? You know, why, why, why are we still He could have already saved oil? the world this problem. Exactly. 
Exactly, man. I mean, what we need next is a villain who's dedicated to wind turbine energy, maybe another who's dedicated to uh, geothermal, mm -hmm. you know? So, um, yeah, that that's something that is really good about this movie. Um, I, I feel like, well, actually, all three of these Brosnan movies that we've looked at so far, there is a sense of place that I really appreciate about these. And, and I've been kind of, you know, I didn't enjoy GoldenEye as much as I thought I would, um, though I still like it. I enjoyed uh, Tomorrow Never Dies more than I thought I would, even though it had been my favorite of the Brosnan movies anyway. Um, and each of those movies did a great job of really sort of putting Bond in places that are exotic and interesting and photogenic, uh, but still feel real. All the stuff in St. Petersburg in, uh, in Goldeneye was pretty amazing. All the sequences, like the helicopter chase, everything, uh, with Michelle Yeoh in, um, the world, I'm sorry, Tomorrow Never Dies, felt real and grounded. This movie is that, that first scene of uh, uh, going over the, the abandoned Soviet oil fields where they've just sort of laid waste to this part of the world. It was really evocative. Um, so that, yeah, I, 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 really, I really appreciate that Bond sort of swings back and forth on this pendulum between total fantasy you know, uh, uh, submarine bases and space stations to something that is tangible and extant. Well, and this is really a Bond movie where everything in it could happen. There, There's nothing outrageous happening here. You know, this is all very grounded stuff. And I think if, if anything can really be said in the movie's favor, that is another really important aspect to this movie is that there there isn't anything like space lasers and you know that kind of stuff where there is uh this sense that um you know these things could happen uh and i really enjoyed that about the film and i thought uh it was it's well done in that way to give us something that is still relevant um even today but of course yeah, I, it, it's just something for me that I, I felt was very strong in the film's favor uh, to give us something that feels down to earth, real, and uh, just what's interesting is that, you know, Pierce Brosnan, I think uh, his films, people have the feeling that they kind of went way more the Ro Roger Moore route. But honestly, in this film, that's not the case. You know, um, we I don't feel like we've gotten to that point yet. You know, we might get there in the next one, possibly. Um, we'll mm -hmm. talk about it then. But <laughs> who knows? Who knows? Um, only the shadow knows. Uh, <laughs> but this one, I didn't think there was anything just crazy that you couldn't see in reality, which was great. You know, all, the gadgets all feel, you know, still more down to earth that Bond has. You know, he doesn't get anything from Q that doesn't seem like you couldn't actually make. Um, and he actually doesn't have a ton of gadgets in the movie. You know, um, I think the the craziest gadget may be the, the x-ray glasses. 
but that doesn't yeah. seem all that far fetched, really, for Bond. So it's a little comic booky, yeah, but like specifically comic mm-hmm. book. It does kind of seem <laughs> but, like something Iron Man would have. Yeah, 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 yeah. You could totally see Tony Stark wearing those glasses. Um, like if that were really a thing in 1999, you know, the glasses would look cool, but Bond would also have like some computer pack and it would have, <laughs> you know, there'd be a camera yeah. on it and you'd see wires and all, but you know, for the purpose right. of the movie, sure. Yeah. But um, the other side of this movie that I thought was also kind of interesting was that there is for, I, f- I feel like maybe the first time there's a personal stake for M. Because this this story revolves around a friend of hers, and of course, you know what happened with uh, Electra King, his daughter, in the past, and so this this almost seems like you know Bond's gone on personal vendettas, but this one kind of leaves M to almost want to be on a personal vendetta, which was another nice way to continue Bond and do something that we'd never seen before. Yeah, I think that that, for me, stole the show more than the whole oil issue, was that A, M was getting personally involved when usually she's been much more removed and good at being an unbiased, great-at-her-job kind of person, um, and that she and Bond have that moment before he goes off on the mission where he says, are you getting too involved, M? And she's like, don't be insubordinate. And, you know, he's looking at her like, who are you to call me insubordinate when you're the one who's getting personal about a mission? I love that. And I and I love, too, that really it it pulled on my heartstrings a, a person like Electra who had been through what she had been through. I think it's very relatable in a sad way um, that kidnappings, unfortunately, happen a lot and that, you know, she went through being um you know, beaten and people wanting ransom for her. And um, then later, obviously, we learned getting Stockholm Syndrome. Um, It's a tough thing to watch, but it's great as a plot device because then you care so much about her and you don't for one minute think until Bond questions her that she could possibly be another villain. Yeah, I you know, l- looking at this movie in retrospect after, uh, gosh, what, a couple of years ago that we did all of the uh, Daniel Craig movies where M is really front and center, um, it was kind of a surprise to go back to this and remember, oh, yeah, this is the first time that they really made M a character. Not not just sort of the, the parent figure, the overseer who gives the mission and then is out of the picture. Um, you know, it really was only in um, License to Kill that Bond and M, we felt, really had any stakes with each other. But then you just don't deal with M anymore after their scene at the Hemingway house. Um, so... When we reintroduce M as Judy Dench, I like that they changed their relationship and they gave them this not not totally adversarial, but, but they they sort of put them in a position where they had to re-earn each other's respect. Um, so it was cool to see then a a a new depth added to uh, uh, to M and to what she brings to uh, to the movies. Well, and I think that's the thing that 
uh, was really enjoyable to see in this film. You know, we've had their relationship progressing. And by this movie, you know, you, you do have where Bond is drawing information out of her, you know, where they're, they're, they're standing there um, at the, the Scottish castle, which what a great place to have, you know, an MI6 lair. Um, and he, he's making her tell him what had happened. And I, I thought that was really interesting because there is almost a role reversal in this film for them where M is the one who is maybe too involved with what's happening. And Bond is the one who's being a little bit more clinical about this and trying to get to the bottom of things um, and, and trying to be slightly more, um, I, don't, I don't know uh, what the right word is, but uh, I guess clinical is probably the best word. You know, just do the spy job, get it figured out, and let's move on to the next thing. And I, I thought that was really nice, you know, because it, it, it just adds another layer to their relationship, but it also adds a lot of trust in their relationship, which I thought was great to see here as well. So I thought that was, it, you know, giving M a bigger part into the story and allowing Judy Dench to do more was fantastic. It's so funny to hear her in interviews. She's so completely the opposite of this character. Um, and being comfortable with anything to do with this, but she plays it so well in the film, you, you never don't buy her. So I, I really appreciate that. Um, I wanted to ask you guys something that's not even on the outline, what I was just thinking about this. You know, we've had Pierce now for, th this is the third film. And I wanted to ask you just about him and, and what you thought about his portrayal of this, you know, incredible icon at this point. Uh, three movies in, has is, is he gotten better for you? Um, has he gotten worse? What do you guys think? I think that he's only gotten better because you can tell always in an actor's first Bond film specifically that the actor is kind of trying to ease the audience into believing them as the new version of Bond, but also that the writers are trying to, to ease you into believing them as well. And that by the second and then the third movie that they're really coming into their own with the character. And I, I think that a, I'm a card toting Pierce Brosnan fan. <laughs> I will tell you <laughs> Thomas crown affair. And it's laminated. Yeah. So. Thomas crown affair is one of my favorite movies of all time. And it's because Pierce Brosnan is so freaking awesome. But um, he is so believable as bond. He's got that, mystery about him um he's got the sex appeal for sure and then he can come in and do the serious parts of the role too and i feel like like i said that he's only gotten better with this character as the films have gone on even if there are parts of the film that's kind of ridiculous um you know him driving this uh jet boat around <laughs> um i i love it but it comes across a little bit like really um a little much, but but they did an incredible job with it. But I, I think that it's totally believable that Bond would be able to do that kind of thing and that Pierce does a great job with it. Yeah, we all said from the beginning that this is the role that Pierce Brosnan was born to play. And, you know, so much relies on the actor, but so much relies on the direction and the writing and the editing and everything that, that ultimately makes it to the screen. And, you know... You just said that 
there may be pieces of Pierce Brosnan's portrayal that kind of dip into the Roger Moore uh, mm-hmm. uh, style of playing Bond, which is very different from Timothy Dalton, very different from Daniel Craig, very different from uh, Sean Connery. But they they all bring their thing, and and of course um, in OHMSS George Lazenby, they all bring their thing, they all bring their interpretation. Um, but I think what's been driven home for me. Less so because it's less acute, but it's a similar thing to what I said about Roger Moore. The problem with those movies wasn't Roger Moore. Roger Moore was giving it all he had. Roger Moore was actually grounding everything that he was given. Pierce Brosnan is given certain things to do that don't really play true. And, you know, you, you mentioned the, uh, the, the boat scene just now, Christy, and, and it's very true. Like, that scene for me went on and on mm-hmm. and on <laughs> and on. And the shot of Bond straightening his tie yeah. underwater was, it, it hit me like the triple take pigeon. You know, it, it, would, it was a decision that probably wasn't his, but it was the director, uh, or or maybe it was something kind of done like, okay, well, we're in this effect scene, and we have this moment where the boat's going to go underwater. We could play this one of several ways. Let's do a take like this, see what we get. And ultimately, the editor and director decide what that pacing and what that scene is going to look like on the screen. If it were me, I would have cut it out. But if it were me, I would have cut five minutes out of that boat chase anyway, you know? Um I feel like Brosnan delivers. He delivers all the time, but we can't fault him necessarily for the 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 constructs around him that don't always land. Because he's doing his best. And I, I know that at the time, and even after Die Another Day, I wanted him to do another, just give us one more, or maybe two yeah. more. Yeah, we know you got and it in I love in that you. he said, like I said in, in the interview that he had in Hong Kong, that he wanted to do a million more of these, that he was so comfortable at yeah. this point that he loved working with this director, Michael Apted, um, and that um, he loved seeing the stunts that they put together. But I, I do think that the f- only fault of the boat scenes was the stunts were great, but they had a little bit too much of the just following of the two boats that could have been cut mm-hmm. for time that really wasn't necessary. No, I agree with both of you. And I think, um, I, I just to add, I, I think this is the film where Brosnan feels the most comfortable so far. He really is inhabiting the role. I, I think he just is Bond at this point. And he, he feels, you know, pretty confident in everything he does. And I, I was noticing, and I really enjoyed the scenes with that were much more tense um, that were much more emotionally driven, uh, the ones that were a little bit harder edged. I think he does that stuff really well. Some of the stuff with Electra where they're challenging each other and also uh, the the scenes, you know, where he's being tortured by her, you know, and he's trying not to let her know that it it's hurting him, you know, and, and giving it back to her basically of, you know, uh, yeah, I don't really care what you're going to do. I'm going to find a way out of this, you know, that kind of attitude. Um, that that steel he has, that Remington steel. <laughs> um, I, I think he just does a very good job in this movie, but I'll agree with you, John. I think that there are places where the movie undercuts that with some humor um, that kind of hurts those tension scenes. 
and it's not his fault. It's just the way in which they do the film, and it's it's a little bit frustrating. And I'll, I'll agree too. You know, the opening credit sequence, the the boat chase just goes on too long, and it becomes the longest opening credit sequence ever because they were going to cut that down, where it was just going to be the part in Spain, and then the other part was going to be later. You know, after the credits, and it was deemed too boring compared to the other Bond movies, so they put in the boat chase. There's nothing wrong with that boat chase. The boat's cool. What's happening is cool. You're just, like you said, Christy, you're allowing the, the chase part where you're just seeing the boats follow each other last way too long. Mm-hmm. And um, the part where, you know, Bond is making his way across, you know, which doesn't even make sense. You know, you, you really lose all reality at that point that, you know, the boat is out of the water, but still somehow it's going, you know, like all that stuff. Um, you know, if you really cut this down and, and just got to that point where he has the confrontation with the balloon and then falls and then hurt his shoulder. All that stuff is great. You know, um, I love that he gets hurt in this movie. Mm-hmm. You know, and that it's kind of a constant reference of, oh, he's got this shoulder thing. And you'll even so- see him fall in certain scenes in other parts of the movie and he winces, you know. Um, so they, they, they keep that going. All that stuff is good. It's just, yeah, Brosnan is undercut by some of the things that they decide to do here in the film. And I see think- the, the opening the opening scene in the Swiss banker's office, I thought was tremendous. Like they did yes. such a good job of building yeah. the tension and you really felt like he was in danger. Of course, you know that he's not. But but w- what a great thing. A little office, a few floors up, the doors are locked. There's three guys in there. And then you have the authorities company coming and you've got to get out of there with the briefcase like all of that stuff was great real world spy stuff or our our imagined version of real world spy stuff then you get back to mi6 and you just mentioned it you know as soon as that boat gets on land and it's not like the scene from live and let die where it just has to make a crossing and then get to the other side where the, the the river picks up again this is like, I, I, again, I go back to Moonraker. It's like, is he now on a hovercraft? Right. <laughs> it, you know, is there something that I missed here about a feature of this boat? Where are the wheels? There have to be wheels. And I, Come and on. I will add, too, that I was thinking even um, rewatching the beginnings of that whole boat scene, um, you're thinking, okay, why doesn't he just, clearly he has the speed advantage in that mini boat he could just drive it up on the back of her boat and then solve the problem. You know, either run her right. over or drive right. it up there and then kill her. But, like, come on. Why Why are you extending this? Why can't he just do that? Um, but I, I do agree that it, it driving the boat through town didn't make sense because you're thinking now it's a duck boat, you know. Um, it's a amphibia mm-hmm. boat is my word. <laughs> um, and it... Um, it kind of takes away from it, but I, I do want to give it credit for the barrel roll that they do in the smaller boat because I, I watched all of the behind the scenes on how the stunt was done and the stunt coordinator, Simon Crane, was so funny because a reporter asked him, what do you do if you break the boat? And he goes, well, we're not breaking the boat, but we have six of them. <laughs> um, yeah. But it, it, yeah. Well, and, and that is the thing. I mean, that chase doesn't look fake no that's the best part about it mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. you know except for 
Pierce Brosnan underwater and the drive through tie. Um, other than that, the, the chase does not look fake. It is all real in the sense that, you know, this this boat exists. They created it, you know, and, and they're actually doing the chase down the Thames, which is fantastic. It's just they have allowed um, themselves to become so enamored with the scene that they're not willing to cut it down to where it needs to be to actually make it tight and really flow well so that you do feel more tension other than like, oh, well, I guess I guess I could get more some more popcorn right. now. You know, <laughs> um, you never want an action scene to go on to that point, you know, um, and, and they just do. I I will say that I think with the villain... I think this is another place where they actually hurt themselves by trying to go so exotic and honestly old school uh, Roger Moore style villain where there's some weird thing about them that they actually hurt the believability of the villain. Um, And... It also it undercuts him in a lot of ways by just making him less menacing because, you know, I, I don't care if you can't feel things because there's a bullet in your brain. It's you can't just pick up a freaking rock that's, you know, bloody hot and not have your hand be scarred. You might not feel it, but your hand ain't going to be right. Normal. He would at least be burnt. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah, he's going to need some kind of a wound dressing either way. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I don't think it's a terrible idea just to, just to give him something, you, you know, uh, to make him a little more menacing, to make him a little different. Like that, that's all fine. Um, but I, I, I felt like they tried to do too much with that. Um, and, and they, they tried to weave it into this guy's personal philosophy, you know, about how he doesn't feel. And that I felt also kind of undermined his quote unquote relationship with Electra. So if you just like, look, if you take a guy like Jaws and you just say, okay, here's this giant mute thing that is terrifying and menacing and comes after you. Um, and he's he's almost impenetrable because you will hurt yourself more than him when you try to engage. Okay, I I actually believe that more. Um, but I I think they tried to take Renard a little too far. Um, and, and even his suicide mission again, it, it it was it was a psychological thing for him too because he was driven by this idea that he can't feel anything, but he feels something for Electra or at least her cause. So he's going to do this because he's dying anyway. It just, it was a little too layer upon layer upon layer. I feel like they were trying to be deep and didn't quite land. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that too, John, because I felt like that always seemed a little weak that why does he care so much about although he's dying ensuring Electra's future but it sounds like he's trying to destroy the entire planet so how would she have a future I don't get it um and the other thing that yeah. bothered me too was if you have to explain before you even meet your villain all of this stuff about him to then explain what his motivations are. Um, I, I felt like that was a little too much. 
um, background yeah. information. You need to be showing me, not telling me kind of thing. Yeah. The whole thing about, then if it gets really muddy between him and Electra, and we'll completely just talk about her in a, in a minute, but, you know, he's kidnapped her, and then you, I mean, in the end, you can't really tell who's manipulating who in this, and maybe that's good, but maybe that's bad, and... I don't know. It just became so muddy. I didn't really care. Mm-hmm. And it kind of hurt the motivation for me um, with caring about Electra, like you were saying earlier, to where I really did want to kind of connect, obviously, with what had happened to her and, you know, this this whole thing about her being kidnapped. And, you know, you get this feeling like she's been psychologically tortured and possibly raped. And, you know, that's all awful. And, it, and it's a actually good setup to create this villain of this person you really are supposed to hate. But he's so silly as a character with this, you know, as we were talking about this thing where there's this bullet in his brain that's slowly traveling towards the center and it just doesn't even make sense medically whatsoever. Um, yeah, why hasn't it stopped? Right? Why, yeah. How is I it know. still moving? Why does it's it, been there a long time. Yeah, I mean, does it, I, is it, is there some sort of magnet at the middle of his brain that's pulling it in? That I doesn't it again? It just doesn't make a lot of sense, and it undercuts like the seriousness of what they've created, which is this awful, awful terrorist, uh, this anarchist who you know has stolen this this you know girl, this kidnapped this girl, and done all these horrible things to her. But by the end of the movie, you don't feel like anything really happened to her. Like, you don't feel like any of that was true. You don't, it, it was just all a ruse. And it, it's like it undercuts the villain completely. And it also makes her a weaker villain in the end, too, because she's actually the other villain. Um, well, yeah, I, and I, I know you've got show notes here, but it seems like you've kind of segued into the next yeah, let's segment go. here uh, to let's, talk about the women. Yeah, let's talk about her. Yeah, because I... I I really have mixed feelings about, well, about the character, Um, uh, uh, not Sophie Marceau. I I think she's she's everything that you would want in a Bond woman, in a foil for Bond and a lover for Bond. She's beautiful. She's sophisticated. She's mysterious. And she plays the range of emotions in this. And the manipulation is great. I remembered from seeing it originally that, yes, I I was fooled for a moment (laughs) that she was not the bad guy. Going back to rewatch it for this, of course, I knew going into it what the twist was with her. And the thing that I appreciated but also kind of felt uneasy from this movie is that they really try to go to a dark place. Um, And, and, you know, I I take my hat off to the Bond producers and writers for doing that. There are some dark themes here for her. There is the torture that she went through, uh, the hatred that she has for the people around her. Uh, There are these dark areas about uh, uh, rape and abuse and the, the Stockholm Syndrome, although a little... Strange that Bond just comes right out and says it in this sort of uh, the the exposition moment of the film. Um, but at the same time, I sat there wondering, are are we just painting a slightly more complex version of this 
you know, tortured woman trope who then has to take it out on everybody around her. And I, I, I kept wanting for the character to be even deeper and even more sophisticated and even more, um, uh, even more empathetic or, or, or something else to be there with her than I actually got out of this. So it's like they, they got me there halfway and then it's just like, okay, well, is she just the mustache twirling bad guy because she has these issues with the other people in her life? And then we're going to, you know, leave her dead on the bed there in, uh, in her lair. John, so, nobody can resist her. Nobody. <laughs> that, nobody can resist her. The fact that she said, oh, the, uh, that drove me nuts. That drove me nuts. Just cut that line right out of the movie. Show it. Yep. Don't tell it. <laughs> you know? And see, I because um, at that exact moment, Bond was resisting her. So it's like you're, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Just stop, just stop. But I will say, <laughs> I I kind of chalked up any um, yeah. inconsistency with her to just her having gone completely off the deep end, crazy at this point. Um, that was my suspension of disbelief with it, and I think what really cemented that for me was it, that it was so creepy when she's running up the staircase from bond and says you can't kill me not in cold blood it was just i mean blood curdling for me that she just looks like she's an insane person at this point and is running toward the next thing um and i and i like that they have bond go there and shoot her right in the face I mean, he didn't shoot her in the face, but, you know, mm -hmm. he's facing her when he shoots her um, because although he does have a good side, he does have a license to kill and at this point has every reason to kill her. So you don't feel bad yeah. that she dies. But, but I, yeah, I, and I think to your point, though, the, the reason it feels so weird is just like at, at that point, it just feels like he's killing this mm -hmm. brat. You know, like we know he can do it. You know, we know Bond can kill in cold blood. We know that Bond is going to finish the job. But at that moment, he's just killing this brat who's this sort of damaged little girl as opposed to the mastermind that I wanted her to be. So it, 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 it all of this and the character stuff kept going back and forth for me where I was like, oh, yeah, we're going to see a formidable Bond woman here who is the bad guy. It's OK that she's the bad guy. That's fine. Um, and she's got a scheme. She's got a plot here. She's manipulating things as best she can. She she is supposedly a step ahead. And when Bond challenges the first time and she turns it around, uh, great. The, the, these are the building blocks for something interesting here. But it it just doesn't end up being what I what I think it could have or should have been. Well, they, they just undercut her by making her crazy pants <laughs> instead mm -hmm. of keeping her sane. Hey, someone had to shut her up. Um, yeah. And the way that they do that is by suspending your disbelief that one maybe she was even tortured in the first place and that she's just this whole mastermind that nobody can resist her you know um then having her be somebody who's truly turned basically to the dark side through stockholm syndrome and muddling all of her motivation uh, you you don't feel like that she has um anything 
the motivations just feel completely off because all of that has has just stirred this stew and you just, you're, you're not sure where she's coming from anymore and it's it's just frustrating because you know i was i think the excitement of of having a a bond woman actually be the full on final villain like the true villain is actually a really smart thing to mm. do and yet they they take her in a way that kind of cheapens that and that's really frustrating especially when this is Sophie Marceau who is such a great actress and she could pull this off but then they just take her into you know bratty crazy pants land and you know by going to bratty crazy pants land you ruin the effect that you were actually going for and that is just definitely frustrating because um, Bond deserves to have I think a very strong female villain one day where you really do feel like bond uh when he does kill her is justified and you don't feel like there's there should be any of that um you know male on female violence in that sense because she truly is a foil for bond as the villain and his equal in that way you want that but like you you get to this point where he kills her and it's just like shouldn't they just put her in a sane asylum you know, really isn't that what they really should do is just, you know, because, yeah, you, you get to that moment where he kills her and it's like, hmm. You feel a little unfulfilled. I feel like she just needs to get a lot of therapy. Yeah. That too. Which is kind of, I mean, that's boring, but yeah. But the rest of the time I I did really love her portrayal and the way they wrote the character up to that point. Yeah, before that, it was very interesting because they were adding some interesting layers about, um, her anger at her father and you know her uh siding with her mother's people and that really that's where the fortune had come from so that was all i think that was all fascinating i mean those are great layers to write in and make her this complex character um i think they they make her so complex she becomes simple in the sense that they give her so much motivation that you don't know if there's any motivation anymore because you're not really sure who she is as a character. Mm -hmm. um, and it's like you're just trying to cram too much into one character and they needed to be able to find a, a simpler through line for her. Um, and, and in fact, I feel like... And I want that through line, I want that through line to not just be a woman scorned right. or a woman with daddy issues. Yes, because I feel like if you had actually tweaked the writing so that when she was taken by Renard, she formed a relationship with him uh, in the sense that he cultivated that hate in her about her father and everything. And that's what would the turn came from. And, you know, it became about this ethnicity and, and all that kind of stuff and, and, and taking that kind of, I, I, you just could have really done something unique and different, um, but they didn't. Which leads us to, you know, Christmas Jones and Denise Richards. And I'm wondering if uh, her playing uh, an American nuclear physicist uh, was that, you know, different and, and you know, really stalwart places we needed to go in this film as our second Bond woman. I really don't see the point in her character. And this is nothing against Denise Richards. This is just for Dr. Christmas Jones being in the movie at all. 
I feel like it, there were two reasons they added her in. One is to have somebody who's a specialist on nuclear physics to talk intelligently about what was going on with the weapons, but two, to stand there and look hot. And and that's why they called Denise Richards, which she did great. But as far as the, the acting goes, I felt like she was a little wooden. Yeah, um, I I can't really say it any better than that. Uh, it, you know, Denise Richards, again, is nothing against her because I, I remember shortly after this movie came out, I can't remember the exact year. Um, fortunately, I, I have a, uh, a database in front of me that uh, shows me all movies. Uh, it, it's uh, connected to the Internet, too. So uh, Undercover Brother, 2002, she played White She-Devil. And she was she hilarious. Was funny in that. She was really yes, funny in she that. was hilarious and sexy, and it, it had this you know spy vibe exploitation movie send up thing. It was perfect. It was absolutely perfect for her. In this role, I just I cringed at the time, and I cringe now. You cringed and you it. cringed again. Um, <laughs> you wait, cringed what's that? and you cringed again. <laughs> I cringed and I cringed again. Yeah. To what you said, it just feels like whoever wrote this felt like, well, we have our main Bond woman, but she's the bad guy, so we have to have somebody else. And honestly, I thought all the scenes of Bond with the doctor from MI6 were far more believable and far more interesting than anything mm -hmm. with Christmas Jones. And I know that they just played that off for like the, the cheap sex gag that it was. Still better. And I would have just rather have seen a return of her character than Dr. Christmas Jones. And look, none of this is to say that you can't be young and beautiful and smart and be a nuclear physicist or whatever. You can be all of those things. Go right ahead. I did not buy it in this movie. <laughs> and I did not buy it in this particular role. I heartily agree that Serena Scott Thomas as the doctor was much more believable um, and had much more chemistry with Pierce Brosnan. I mean, that scene is, I, it, it is kind of silly, but it's electrically sexy. Mm -hmm. You yeah. know, that yeah. you can tell. And, and what I thought was actually kind of great about that scene, it's totally a throwaway, really, because he's, you, you kind of got the feeling like they've done it uh -huh. before. Like this is a pattern with them, you know, and, um, you know, they work together and, and it's never going to be more because it can't be more because if she got found out, she would definitely get in trouble. You know, there's all that going on. Uh, and of course, Money Penny knows, which that made for some fun jokes. But, you know, yeah, she's pretty much there to feed that moment with yeah. Money Penny, which is fine, which is fine. And I actually I liked Samantha Bond more in this as Money mm -hmm. Penny than yeah. I had before. Well, I mean, close, but no cigar. Mm -hmm. um, oh, so. Uh, but yes, Denise Richards is woefully miscast here. And, and reportedly who they were thinking about casting of Jerry Hallowell or maybe Tiffany Amber Thiessen. I mean, does not help that they were ever thinking about this role as anything. You know, they're not aiming high with this character. They're, they're, it's the lowest common denominator. Denise Richards is beautiful, but I mean, she's, she's not the character you need for this role. You need somebody who can really act the part of, you know, as she said, Richard stated she liked the character because she was brainy and athletic and had depth of character. 
well, the character on the page may have that, but you didn't add any of that, unfortunately. And so, and in fact, you took that all away. And it's just because this is not the role for her. And, and, And so, again, Denise Richards was fantastic when her blackness was confirmed. She had soul and undercover brother. You know, I mean, she was amazing in that movie. She's so good at comedic stuff. But here... Yeah, I mean, her, you know, fake disgust over Electra King and Bond being with her and all that stuff. It just, nothing about the character works whatsoever. And it's very frustrating. So, and even just the name, it felt like in the past, you know, the, the Bond women names could be pretty um, perverse in a funny way. Um, obviously, like the Holly Goodhead and, you know, all of that. But, um, it, felt like they were trying to be a little safe but still have something funny but you saw the joke coming the first time they said her name if her name is christmas at some point they're going to make a joke about opening the presents Mm -hmm. ha 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 Mm -hmm. and she even says that she even says i've heard all the jokes so come on but they still do it at the end any doctor jokes that was actually the best joke about her name I don't know any doctor jokes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they should have just stuck with that. But of course, you know, the last line in this movie may be more egregious than what we get at the end of Moonraker. Oh, he's attempting uh, re-entry, yeah. sir. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure which is worse. Right. So, and that's saying something. All of the above. All of the <laughs> just above. Just that they're all the worst. <laughs> I do. Uh, okay. So, a quick side before we get to Q. Um, what did you think about the cigar joke with money? Penny? Oh, I loved it. Yeah, look, I mean, it, it it it's it's one of those traditions in Bond movies that you just can't give up. You you have to have the the tension, the flirtation between Bond and Money Penny, and um, they're just going to keep finding those moments and playing them. Some more extreme than others. Go to it. Well, and I I mean, you know. I guess if you're making fun of Bill Clinton, uh, it, it's allowed. <laughs> yeah. You, and she tosses uh-huh. it. Yeah. Good for her. It's, it is. It is great. Yeah. Um, yeah. I And I agree with you, too, John. I, I really appreciate her in this role. She has a she has a small role here, but I, I thought um, her and Bond had some, some fun together in that. And I, I liked her little bits in this film. I just thought it was it was it was enjoyable. I wanted to ask you guys about saying goodbye to Q because this is uh, Desmond Llewellyn's last film. And he was already retiring from the role because he was just getting too old to play it. And sadly, he would die in a car crash not long after the premiere. Do you feel as though he got the right send-off? I do. I think that I felt it coming even though I knew, obviously, I had seen the film before and knew the history of Desmond Llewellyn. Um, you get the feeling when you're watching his scenes with Bond, at, you know, when he first comes in that, A, you can see Desmond's age in this movie at, at this point in his life. Um, and then B, you can tell that, um, you know, he's mentioning his retirement when he says, you ruined my retirement vessel. Um, and uh, but it, it still every time makes me emotional. Like I I felt like I was going to cry when he said, always have an escape plan and then just slowly lowers into the ground. Um, You feel like you're losing him at that point um, in general. And so it, it really was 
a sweet way of handling it. I felt like it was appropriate and really gave him a lot of clout and didn't just dismiss him. Um, but great to bring in John Cleese. I, um, I, I don't know who else I would have used at this point to possibly replace Q. Um, and so I think that it, it, they picked the perfect person to come in and then making the joke of him as being R and um, being the butt of the joke that he's never going to be as good as Q was cute. Um, I, I agree that, you know, that send off of him going down the elevator was perfectly shot. It was perfectly acted. It was poignant. It was a really nice moment uh, for them to have in there. And you really felt Desmond Lewerlin's age in this more so than even in the last movie. It's just something changed and suddenly he felt a lot older than the old man that he already was. I do wish, though, that they had separated his scenes with the John Cleese scenes as are. I, I, I don't I don't know what the right answer to that is. I don't know how structurally I would have done it or or how I could think through it, but I wanted Q to just have his moments on his own. And, you know, John Cleese, pretty much wherever he shows up, he's going to upstage everybody because he's John Cleese, (laughs) you know? So I I would have liked to have seen a bit of separation there. Um, But even though you introduce... Are in a completely silly way with him having his lab coat stuck in the door and all that, he absolutely turns it around and gets to have his quips with Bond. And that is the right tone that we expect that was established by Desmond Llewellyn, you know, 47 years prior to this. I agree with you, John. I, I do think that they needed to find a way to, to have more separation in those scenes so you could really feel... Llewellyn's last moment. Um, I am glad that Cleese was there because I now know how to finally put on a jacket. Um, <laughs> you know, and so I really right appreciate that. Left arm that second. Scene. Yeah. I, I'm going to disagree with both of you though. I don't think John Cleese was the right choice. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel that he's too silly. You know, Desmond Llewellyn was never silly. Uh, he he took the job very seriously, and, and from the beginning, he he was somebody who was the straight man. John Cleese is not the straight man; he's the joke man. And I feel like setting that up, you you set a bad precedent for the idea of the Q branch, and so that it's just kind of the joke. Whereas you know Desmond Welland always you know. Uh, he, he, you know, I never joke about my work, 007, you know, like that, that's, that's who he was. And so I was disappointed actually with this point of the film and R and of course what we get in Die Another Day. But again, we'll talk about that later. Uh, so I just didn't feel like that was the, the right choice, but that's just me. So, well, no, I see, I, I see where you're coming from because he's, they give him a lot of silly, you know, opening with the coat stuck in there and then him getting caught in the giant inflatable ball. They, they give him a lot of silly. I think the only thing that redeems it at all is that he shows Bond that he can give as good as he can get. Um, so he is there with right. the barbs and, and John Cleese in, in a lot of his comedic acting work has been able to do that where he'll there'll be something silly and out of control, but then he'll turn it right back around and he's got the upper hand. Um, 
do they take it a step too far here? Yes. <laughs> and I guess we'll see what happens, speaking of a step too far, in the next movie. Stay tuned. And I will add, Matt, if you remember, <laughs> I don't remember exactly which Roger Moore film it was, but um, there was a moment at the end where Bond is in the pool with the woman and um, Q is watching from the balcony like a creeper. <laughs> oh, yeah. So he does uh, have his moment. movie, isn't it? Uh, License to Kill. Uh-huh. All in all, though, I I do think his his last moment is is quite wonderful, and it, it is a good way to remember him. You know, being able to to go out like that and and to go out on his terms, it, it's great that he got that opportunity. Um, I wanted to ask you guys uh, about a Bond ally that we got back in the film, Robbie Coltrane, as Valentin Sukowski, and you know, at this point, just another person that helps out Bond, and and I wanted to know how you guys thought. Uh, and what you guys thought about him being back and kind of just being in Bond's camp at this point. I mean, he's a little antagonistic, for, but for the most part, he's really just here to help Bond. And um, again, another character that they kind of put firmly into the comedy camp for the most part. I will say the one weakness I felt with Valentin's character was that they don't ever really explain the issue where Electra bets a million dollars and loses, and then later Bond confronts Valentine about it, and they still don't really explain how Valentine and Electra possibly knew each other prior. Um, so I felt like that was a little bit of a weak point in the plot, but it, otherwise, I absolutely love Robbie Coltrane, and I love him as Valentine. I, I really like the back and forth that he and Bond have, that they're not just, oh, best friends forever and always kind to each other. I like that every time we see him with Bond, Bond's coming in with a gun pointed in his face and he's Valentine's going, whoa, whoa, hey, hold on a minute. I didn't do anything. But, you know, he's always a little bit of a, you know, dirty guy. Um, I mean, heck, this time when we first see Valentine, he's got a woman on either side of his desk. So you know that he's not this squeaky clean guy. He's also running his own casino and saying, make sure they lose all their money in this one. <laughs> yeah, I got no complaints there. I mean, Robbie Coltrane was so good in Goldeneye in this character. And, and it, it's really nice to see him back. And it's nice to see Bond have to deal with people who are... On his side only because, well, it's, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. It, it, you know, mm -hmm. it, it, it's instead of just being purely good guy, bad guy, black and white, it's nice to see Bond have to navigate this in-between kind of gray world. And uh, Robbie Coltrane just chews scenery whenever he's on. So, um, yeah, I would have liked to have seen more of him, but he got an honorable way out, you know. He, he he was he was in the mix in the action, and he may not actually be dead. Oh. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. <laughs> it's like a, the Mace Windu. Actually, I mean, we never see him die. We just yep. see that yep. he passes uh -huh. out. So, and he got a shot in before he, he went did. out too. A good one too. The um, yeah, I I I like him in this movie. I think he's funny, you know, and he does. I think add the right kind of humor to the film personally. It's um, the only thing I would say is in that moment with Electra, uh, where he comes in and it becomes a comedy moment where he's like, I, I'm looking for a submarine. It's big and it's black. And, you know, the driver is a very good friend mm -hmm. of mine. Um, it's it. 
it takes that moment that had such tension and completely alleviates it. And that's not exactly what I wanted in that moment, especially as Bond's neck's about to be snapped. Yeah. Um, and I, I wish that it had been, there would there had not been a joke there and that, you know, his kind of rise up wasn't so over dramatic, you know, as he rises up and he, you know, he points it at her and then he oh, brings yeah. it over. Like, it's just, it's very cliched. And I think it, it does hurt the moment there. But otherwise, everything else he's doing, especially when he's hanging out with Bond, I really appreciate that. Uh, especially as they just start drinking together and they're talking about everything. And, you know, th- there is that sense of, like you said, John, they, they have become close because the enemy of my enemy is my friend. But in some ways, they don't want to admit that they've become friends. And that's kind of funny. So I enjoy that. And don't um, you love the joke, too? Sorry, Matt. Um, I had to throw in when he's in the um, muck floating around and Bond's questioning him. And he says, you're going to make me drown in my own caviar. I love it. <laughs> that was that was actually nice. Um, and I did like, you know, Bond is is cold. He'll if you if you didn't tell him what he wanted to know, he might have let him mm-hmm. die. You know, um, so there there is that edge to bond i really enjoy in this film you you see it every once in a while and i really appreciate pierce kind of bringing that what did you guys think about the action in the movie i mean we've got more skiing we get chased by helicopters with giant spinning tree cutters um you know you have a bmw z8 that they malign in a way that should be against all that is holy i mean it's just it is wrong it is so wrong what they do to that car um yeah, what it, how did how did the action in this Bond movie live up for you guys? Um I you know I said at the beginning the the boat chase really drives me nuts. Uh not because the boat isn't cool, not because they don't get good stunts in there. It just goes on and on and it really stretches credibility at a certain point. I, I need Bond to go up to a point. I need them to cross the line, but then I need them to kind of bring it back and and still still tell me that I'm in the real world in in terms of Bond world, you know. Um, the boat going across so many lanes of traffic and through buildings and all this. It's like, come on, guys, we we, we can stop this. Um, the ski chase stuff was good. Uh, the only bit that I didn't like was Bond uh, ripping one of the parachutes with his ski, but then somehow floating right off of that parachute and doing a perfect landing instead of getting tangled yeah. up in there, which is what would have really happened. Um even the, uh, I, I thought the stuff on the submarine was pretty cool just because it's an interesting environment to throw them, not only to have this stolen sub, but to have it upended and have to do that, that final bit of action like that, I thought was, uh, was a pretty clever use of the set. However, I feel like a lot of these action scenes, a lot of these set pieces it was a lot of just going from one place to another. And that, that's part of the problem with the movie. It's just like, um, you know, oh, okay, well, we're, we're in an oil field, uh, oil field now. And, uh, oh, well, uh, now we have to be inside the, uh, the oil pipeline. 
uh, which is something Bond did a few movies ago, uh, but this time for a different reason. Um, oh, well, now we're on a submarine because we have a submarine. <laughs> you know, it's just sort of uh, just jumping from one place to another because partly out of obligation to show the audience, here's a different set piece, here's a different action piece, here's a different set piece, here's a different action piece. Um, they work because Bond always does a good job with action, but some of it feels like it's by rote. Yeah, I agree with you there, John, for the jumping around, for sure. It felt like, well, we need to fit all of these locations in, so we're going to do it, even at the detriment to the film. Um, it, but I, I did like the ski chase aside from the things that you mentioned. Um, and I love um, Electra's ski outfit. I really want it. <laughs> nice. Just going to throw that out there. Um, and, and I I like the idea that there are these tree saws that hang down from a helicopter but i don't think that really exists or that it's even possible um and it really kind of just becomes this the shotgun over the fireplace where you see it at the beginning and you're going okay someone's gonna either die with that later or they're going to cut something in half with it you just know they're going to bring it back yeah. later um so it felt a little unnecessary to even have them in the movie um but otherwise i think that you know the gadgets were great i really enjoyed the things that they put in the car um and um using the submarine i think that although that scene felt a little long with bond and renard and uh christmas that it was interesting and that it would be difficult to have a fight in <laughs> a sinking submarine. Um, so it, it was cool, but it, it was a little bit too long and um, some parts felt a little too implausible to me, um, especially Bond swimming out from one hole of the submarine and then back into another mm -hmm. and her having to open the door there were a lot of doors opening and closing, and I didn't know where people are going to or from. Right. And I will say this, a BMW Z8, way sexier than a Z3. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. That, oh, yeah. That car also retains its value. Apparently, right now, the lowest you can buy one is for, I think, 169000 What? So, yeah. Uh, just um, outside of my budget. I Look, I don't have a lot to say about the action. I'm just going to say this. Uh, apparently, Bond eats vanilla. Uh, because this is a vanilla action film. None of them feel exciting. There's there's nothing really happening in them that you're... I don't know. It just... Yeah, Bond, it's vanilla. That, that's all I got. You know, yeah. I'm sorry. So, you're not wrong. Let's move yeah. on to music and theme. Yeah. Um, and I want to hear what you guys think about that. Uh, I'll start real quick, and I got to say, I think David Arnold knocks it out of the park again with the music. Uh, I do think that the soundtrack is, is fantastic. It feels like classic Bond. Um, you know, it, it's great action music. Uh, so there's nothing wrong with that. Um, uh, yeah, the only thing wrong is that they got the wrong artist to sing this song. Um, the song is not bad. You just needed somebody who could really bite into the song and sing it, like a Shirley Bassey kind of thing or... Um, I don't know, but it, it's not the song that's the problem. I, I feel like garbage, well, 
It was a garbage rendition. Oh, I disagree. I liked it, and um, I recognized it again when I was listening to it, and then I said, I know that voice, and um, sure enough, it was Garbage the Band, and I, I actually like them, so I, I thought it was a beautiful um, rendition, and I, I, I liked the way that they did it. Yeah, I remember, um, uh, Christy, I, I, I'm on your side on this one. I, I remember uh, uh, listening to Garbage, you know, for a few years before this movie came out and thinking, man, she has got, Shirley Manson has got a really cool voice mm -hmm. and I like the sound of this band. I would love for them to do a Bond theme. Because, I mean, look, we came off of um, uh, Tomorrow Never Dies having a great song that was not the theme song and then a terrible song that was the theme song. For this one, it, uh, no pun intended, hit all the right notes for me. Um, I, that is exactly the sound that I wanted out of a contemporary rock band doing a Bond theme. Um, yeah, I, I got nothing to add to that, but it, it is one of my favorites. Yeah. Sorry, Man. Matt. That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> you know, um... I think it's great when we have, you know, different opinions, honestly. I think it makes for Indeed. a much more, you know, interesting conversation. And I'm glad it worked for you guys better than it did for me. So, you know, I'm just glad that the music, you know, didn't sound like Goldeneye mm -hmm. again. So here, here. thank the maker for that. <laughs> um, I guess the, the, the last question is, uh, was the world enough for you guys? What is your rating for the world is not enough? Oh, it's kind of difficult because, it, you know, there were a, a lot of drawbacks, but it, I did enjoy it more on the rewatch than I thought that I would. Um, so I, I'm going to kind of put it in the middle for me and give it a, a six out of ten um, tree saws. Um, because it, it, there were a lot of things that I surprisingly still liked. Um, I, I think that... Um, the villain, um, you know, woman this time instead of just a man was great. I think that Sophie did a great job as this um, character that was troubled but also had a good side. And fooling Bond, and especially on your first time seeing this movie, fools the audience into thinking she couldn't be a, a bad guy. Um, I, I love that for M, something gets personal and that she even gets out on the field. Um, and you're thinking, no, M, don't do it. What if you die? We'd have no one to give the missions. And I, and I like a lot of the action sequences, even though some of them could get a little silly with the boats. I still think the stunts were great. Um, and credit to the stunt guy for doing that barrel roll in the boat. I couldn't do that. Um, and then last but not least, I have to add in that I still love Valentin Zakovsky and I hope, um, Maybe at some point we'll get a similar character again. Um, so yeah, six out of ten for me. So unfortunately, this is a Bond movie that when it came out, I was so underwhelmed that I had only seen it once. So when it hit theaters, that, that was my first and only time watching this movie in its entirety. You know, as a set thing, watching from beginning to end. I, I'd seen many, many pieces of it over the years, but um, that was the first time until now that I had just watched it in its entirety, uninterrupted from beginning to end. And I remembered why. 
films because to me this movie commits the ultimate sin of Bond movies, which is that it was boring to me. I I never felt engaged in the characters, and I really wanted to. Um, I was so intrigued with the idea of the Electra character. I was in, I, intrigued at the darkness they were going for, and I wanted to see Pierce Brosnan in something other than what we had just seen him do in uh, in his first two movies. And I loved that we incorporated M, and I thought some of the locations here were great. But like I said before, talking about the action sequences, it just feels like we're going from one place to another without a lot of uh, of sort of emotional meat to sink my teeth into. Um, there are good moments. There are really good moments here, but they don't tie up to make a total package for me. And I don't think it's Pierce Brosnan's fault I don't think it's Sophie Marceau's fault. Certainly not uh, Dame Judy Dench's fault. And we get to see other ancillary characters that I like. I like Samantha Bond here uh, as Moneypenny. I like Tanner. I like uh, Colin Salmon. I, you know, these are all good people. I just feel like they they didn't quite put together the movie to fit all of this. So. Um, you know, the things that I like in this, I like a lot, but at the end of the day, this is not a movie that I'm going to go back and watch, really. So I'm going to give it uh, three X-ray sunglasses out of ten. Uh, this is a Christmas present that should have stayed unwrapped. Um, <laughs> it just it should never have been bought as a Christmas present. Um, and so... I, I and I can't really add anything to what you said, John. I think you said it eloquently. So for me, I will say this is this is five out of ten unwrapped Christmas presents. It's just it's 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 just so like it wants to be better than it is, but it's just so baseline mediocre. You know, it's just so in the middle, which makes it vanilla. You know, and so it's disappointing. Um. And it's disappointing because, well, what we have looming is possibly disappointing as well. But we'll see as we die another day next time on the 602 Club. Um, I want to thank you guys for joining me. It, I love getting to do these shows. They're, they're some of the shows I, I look forward to the most. Thank you so much to Ken Tripp and Davis Grayson and Daniel Noah for supporting us over on Patreon uh, here as associate producers. Uh Track FM is a huge network, and we can't do this without you. So we do ask you, go over to patreon.com slash trekfm and see how you could become part of our team today and really help all of these shows keep coming to you. Uh, we cannot do it alone. Uh, it's just too expensive. So, again, we ask you to go over to patreon.com slash trekfm. Uh, a little bit every month helps. It really does. So go over there and become part of our team and help make sure all of the Trek FM shows come to you each and every week. Guys, I, I love this. It, it truly is an honor for me to do these shows with you. Uh, Christy, let everybody know where they can find you and uh, hit you up online with all the things that you've got going on because it, you've got a lot going on. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. Uh, of course, you guys know you can always find me here often on the 602 Club um, doing the Bond films as well as the other geek topics, TV shows, books. Um, and then I am on a monthly show with my friend Teresa Delgado called Galactic Fashion on the Jedi News Network. And um, then I also sometimes write for StarWarsReport.com. 
And um, you can find me online at Bespin Bell on Twitter and Instagram, as well as Galactic Fashion on Twitter and Galactic Fashion Pod on Instagram. And John Champion, where can everybody find you, sir? Uh, best place to find me would be through Roddenberry Podcast Network, podcast.roddenberry.com. We will be linked up to Mission Log and Mission Log Live and the other shows that we do. And uh, if you're looking for me personally, well, Twitter at DVD Geeks, right? You know, pop in occasionally or on Instagram. Uh, you can find me there as Slow Mo Gentleman. Woo! Mm, that's Slow Mo Gentleman. Ah, <laughs> oh, gosh. You can find me on Twitter, MattRushing02. I'm also on Instagram under the same name. I'm here on the network doing The Orb with Chris Jones talking about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. I've got a couple of shows over on the Nerd Party Network. I've got Owl Posts with Drea Kaufman talking about the Harry Potter series one chapter at a time. And then I've got Aggressive Negotiations with John Mills talking about Star Wars each and every week. We just pick a crazy topic that we've been thinking about and discuss that. It's a lot of fun. And then last but not least, doing cinema stories with my good friend Courtney, all about films through the lens of faith. But thank you so much for joining us. And y'all come back now, you hear? Thank you.